Welcome to Chi Alpha at Texas Tech University. The messages in this podcast were designed to encourage you and to challenge you in your walk with Jesus. We're so excited that you're here, and we hope that this message will help you to better fight for God's kingdom with us. Hello, Texas Tech. How are we doing tonight? Very cool. Always a pleasure to be with you, Red Raiders, truly, looking at some familiar faces in the room. Red Raiders, correct? Yeah? Okay, right on. Just got to make sure. Just got to make sure. Don't know where I am sometimes in the nation, which is why you have to communicate with central time zones and such. Yeah. You going to go to that October thing next week? Yeah? What are you going to go? What are you going to go as? A prisoner or something? I got two ideas for you. You could go as an ice road trucker, because you, you could pull it off. Or two, you could go as Harry Potter. Now let me finish my sentence. Harry Potter would have been significantly cooler if he had your mustache and your sideburns. That's a fact. I would have been way more entertained if he had that, you know. Yeah, so I, I suggest you do that. What, what would a mudblood do? You're going to be Harry Potter now. A-Rod 2.0 can't pull it off because you've never seen a Hispanic Harry Potter. That would would make no sense. You could try A-Rod 2.0, and I I suggest you do. That's at least worth a shot. Two Harry Potters, maybe, you know? And your other thing to do would just be Zorro, but that's, you know, boring. It's the only Hispanic superhero we have is Zorro right now. He's not even super. He's just a regular guy. He dresses in a black cape and is good with a sword, you know. Jeez. Anyway. I'm so sorry. I'm distracted. Uh, you guys doing well? It's cold outside, huh? Yeah, but everyone's in here. It, it, it does feel like Christmas time, which is odd because we haven't even hit Halloween yet. Um, yeah, and then Thanksgiving. Everyone's just skipping over Thanksgiving now, going straight to Christmas. Now we're skipping over Halloween or fall festival, whatever you prefer. Um, yeah. Okay, you guys ready? Let's do it. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses, excuse me, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, we'll get to that text in a moment, but allow me to introduce the text with some context. Uh, recently, my wife and I have transitioned from a local Chi Alpha role in New Mexico to a national Chi Alpha role in Springfield, Missouri. This transition, like any transition, has been filled with newness of experience and consciousness of first impressions. What's new for a boy from Texas is seeing Kansas City Chiefs players on television advertising everything. Patrick Mahomes sells cars. Travis Kelsey apparently has a lawyer. Missouri does not want the business of the Dallas Cowboys. What's new for a man from New Mexico is Midwesterners will see the jacket I wear when it's cold outside and ask, is that your winter jacket? I will respond, are not all jackets winter jackets? To which they respond with laughter and literally walk away. (laughs) Regarding first impressions, I find myself making a conscious choice for what my wardrobe will be on any given day, especially on chapel day when I sit in the same room as Assemblies of God executives and superintendents. Regarding first impressions, I found myself spell-checking emails before sending them so no one will think the new guy is lacking in education. And regarding first impressions, I find myself not wanting to be late to anything, especially staff meetings. 
There was one staff meeting in particular within the first month of my arrival that I did not want to be late to. It was a meeting with our national director, the boss of all bosses, the leader of all the leaders. I knew at 9 a.m. on that specific Wednesday, I needed to be in the conference room. So I woke up an hour earlier to begin my morning routine an hour earlier to get to the conference room an hour earlier. I have got my binder worth of data for the meeting at hand. I got my proposals polished and ready to go. I have my rebuttals polished and ready to go. Of all the meetings up to this point in my career, this was the one that I was absolutely perfect with preparation. The clock finally strikes nine. No one is coming through the office doors, which means I have arrived before the boss arrived, and that's always a huge win. The hand moves to 905. Our national director is not here. He must be caught up in another meeting. He is the president of Chi Alpha, after all. The hand then becomes 915. Our national director at this point will most likely apologize for his tardiness, at which I will hold, hold it over him. In order to say reconciliation will have to be a free lunch. All is looking well. The time is then now 9.30 a.m. How is it possible that the national director of Chi Alpha is 30 minutes late to a meeting that, he's, that he picked? As I begin to process all the possible conclusions for his absence, one thought overwhelmingly prevails. There are two logical conclusions for an absence. One, someone is not where they're supposed to be. Or two, I am not where I am supposed to be. I then recall with sudden alarm, there are two conference rooms Kaiafa can meet in. I look to my calendar as it reveals the conference room is meeting in building one, and I am currently in building two. <laughs> I now understood the real culprit of absence. It's not that our national director was not where he was supposed to be. I was not where I was supposed to be. The culprit of absence is the problem of our text tonight. Acts 1.8, we read the final words of Jesus to his Christians before he ascends from earth to heaven to descend his spirit from heaven to earth. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this cause finds its effect in Matthew 24.14, when Jesus promises the result, this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth as a witness, and then the end will come. In other words, to fulfill the cause of being God's witnesses to the ends of the earth is to bring about the end of the world, biblically understood as the return and reign of King Jesus, who creates a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more selfishness, where God will be our God and we will be his people. This effect of the return of Christ to the cause of being his witnesses must trouble us because it has been 2000 years later since this language of God was spoken. And yet there has been no return of King Jesus. This absence of Christ has two logical conclusions. Either God is not where he is supposed to be or his Christians are not where they are supposed to be. These are the only logical conclusions for the culprit of absence. Either God is too idealistic in hinging his return to the command to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, or we are too apathetic in being responsible witnesses, which is why we have not left our living rooms. My atheist friends in the room, 
My agnostic friends in the room, my lukewarm Christian friends in the room, we're honored by your presence tonight and I must be forthright with you. We are going to exposit this text believing that God is real and he is innocent, but we are guilty. We have not been responsible to the command of Jesus in Acts 1.8 and therefore we, not God, has delayed the return and reign of King Jesus. With that being said, we're going to look at three aspects of being God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. Being his witness with holiness, being his witness with evangelism, and being his witness with power. So would you pray with me as we desperately need God to speak to us tonight. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for Texas Tech Chi Alpha. Thank you that your vision is to change the world from Lubbock, Texas. And thank you for every student in here and every missionary in here that is committed to that vision through going and through sending, O oh Lord God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, no matter what we think about our short-term short dreams and no matter what we think about our long-term desires, may we listen to you tonight and may we put dreams on a cross tonight and visions on a cross tonight and 10-year and 20-year plans on a cross tonight that if you would have us go, we would not delay Oh, God, may scales fall off our eyes that we can see your holiness tonight. Because there is no responsibility to you before we first and foremost see a revelation of you. So help us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Kill fear tonight. Amen. Now, one of the joys of Chi Alpha is going on mission trips. Anyone been on a mission trip? Anyone planning on going on a mission trip? That's good to hear. The primary purpose of a mission trip is to experience a missional life in a short time that can motivate people to give a lifetime. The byproduct can be the unique experience of culture shock for the American processing the international and for the international processing the American. One such example takes me back to my intern year with Chi Alpha Sam Houston State. I was assigned to lead a mission trip to Mexico City along with three other interns. There was Emmett Rumfield. A skater boy with Justin Bieber hair and a Colgate commercial set of teeth. He kept his words few, but when he spoke, it did count. And this is very much a reserved personality. He also had a sensitive spirit explaining the book, The Shack, made him ball like a baby. But in his defense, Toy Story 4 made me cry like a baby, so to each his own. There was J.C. Claviri, a Cajun who is living proof you can take the boy out of Louisiana, but you cannot take Louisiana out of the boy. His Cajun culture would say things like, where you at? And how's your mama in dim? <laughs> we did not quickly understand him. I think he understood that, resulting in another reserved personality. In effort to make him feel more comfortable around his new unfamiliar setting, we would, talk, we would turn Chuck Norris stories into JC stories. I heard JC went back in time and fathered himself. Did you know although kids have a poster of Batman on their walls, Batman has a poster of JC on his wall? And my personal favorite, people think the Titanic sank because it hit an iceberg. That's not true. JC was swimming in the Atlantic Ocean one day, went up to catch his breath. The Titanic crashed into his abs and began to sink. <laughs> All in effort to make a personality no longer reserved. There was John Barreca, a six foot three walking tree limb whose, <laughs> whose skinniness put him in danger of blowing away with a strong wind. He wouldn't make it in Lubbock, Texas. He spoke about as much as a tree because of his shyness, another reserved personality. To build his confidence in order to bring out his personality, we would build up wisdom. We would build up his wisdom by assigning famous quotes to his lips. 
Stuff like, I know Mexico City might be a scary mission trip, but as John Barreca once said, the only thing to fear is fear itself. <laughs> I know street evangelism is easier to avoid than do, but as John Barreca said, you miss 100% of the shots that you never take. <laughs> the, so stupid. <laughs> These three different reserve personalities and I were responsible for leading this mission trip. These leaders did not necessarily demand attention. They never announced their presence, either by word or by action. They were individuals that kept to themselves, requiring you to intentionally notice them. In America, a country filled with other Caucasian men that look like, dress like, and sound like them, their presence can and does go unnoticed. But as soon as our mission trip in Mexico City placed us in a middle school filled with brown preteens that did not look like, dress like, or sound like them, upon seeing these white men, every preteen Mexican girl dropped their school books, ignored their school teacher, ran out the school doors like a kindergartner at recess to come and inspect these white men unlike any they had ever seen before. <laughs> Nobody notices me, of course, because I have the same brown skin and the same Sesame Street eyebrows. <laughs> But upon, it's true. but upon seeing these young white Americans with their lack of fashion sense and barely combed hair, they were all in awe and giddiness over these men as if the Jonas Brothers had come to town. An inspection response like this is actually quite normal. As soon as you see something or someone other, you know it's different from everything else and everyone else around. This otherness produces not only a fascination of what's other, but an inspection to discern why is it other. This is people dropping what they are doing to look at people unlike any they have seen before. This is a tech nation fascinated with car, a car that drives itself. This is the citizens of 2007 expect, inspecting an iPod that also takes phone calls. This is the United States in 2019, wanting to know why a man would want to hug the police officer who shot his brother. This is the Pharisee Saul, haunting himself with constant thoughts of why a man named Stephen would ask God to forgive the people stoning him to death. This inspection led to his own self-discovering of Jesus on a road to Damascus. This is the soldier Joshua, in awe of the face of his leader Moses, shining like an angel. This inspection led to Joshua staying at a tent to meet long with God. While everyone else went to their homes, Joshua made the presence of God his home. This is Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead and rejecting earthly kingships with his eyes solely on a heavenly kingship, preaching scriptures with an authority that no Pharisee had, being tempted like we are, yet without the sin that we have, loving neighbor and enemy with a love that we do not have, living in per perfection we did not know, dying a shame we did not bear, ascending with a glory we did not own. Truly, there is no otherness like the otherness of God. And this otherness of Christ produced an inspection that transformed disciples into apostles. Otherness produces not only a curiosity of what's other, but an inspection to discern why it is other. Now this otherness can be received with hate as some people do not like otherness. This is how prejudice is born. And this otherness can be received with curiosity and questions, but zero assimilation. And this is how philosophy is born. But this otherness can also be received with revelation and repentance. This person is unlike me, but I must be like them. This is how Christians are born. Do you see then 
the necessity, not just for us to believe there is a God, but to behave like God. Let's get a little biblical tonight. James says even the demons believe there is a God and shudder. Being theologically perfect does not transform hell into heaven. The Lord asks for more than belief when he asks for behavior. As God commands in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. He expands on the nature of holiness when he says, love your neighbors, which is an interest other to the world's indifference. No greater love than this than a man would give his life for his friends, which is a service other than the world's entitlement. Love your enemies, which is a peace offering other to the world's condemnation. Bless those who persecute you, which is a response other to the world's cursing. Forgive one another, which is a memory other to the world's immortalizing of offense. Do not look lustfully. To do so is to commit adultery in your heart, which is a discipline other to the world's indulgence. Pray to be seen by God, not men. Give to be seen by God, not men. Fast to be seen by God, not men. Work to be seen by God, not men, which is a motive other than religion serving self at the expense of God. This is what it means to be holy in response to God's command to be holy because he is holy. We... You and I must become other. This is the why of holiness. An otherness of behavior produces an inspection leading people to Jesus. An otherness of godly behavior produces an inspection leading people to Jesus. But we also need to understand this cost of holiness. Tios and Sparks defines the otherness of God with the cost of holiness this way. He says... Something has to happen. Our entire mentality has to change and be transformed. The mind has to be renewed. We have to have an altogether different kind of outlook, even about the things of God. He says it is a constitutional matter, not merely a directional one. The distance of the otherness of God is not the distance of time or geography. It is the distance of difference. And we make faster or slower progress spiritually, according to how we learn this lesson. Are we willing to pay this cost of the otherness of God to be his holy witnesses? Small group leaders, this cost of holiness means that you cannot binge watch pornography with your small group members thinking pornography with a storyline from a mainstream app that millions stream is not pornography. Entertainment that wins television awards can still be wicked and make you wicked. A pure heart costs not doing what everyone else is doing. Small group members, this cost of holiness means you cannot dishonor your small group leaders to the saved and unsaved members of your small group because you would do something differently than what they would do. Honor is not meant for philosophies and practices and programs. Honor has been and is always meant for people. Giving honor to people costs something. It costs not talking about how you would do it better than someone else. Missionaries. This cost of holiness means you can disagree with methodologies, but you have to align. This cost of holiness means your lack of devotional life is owning up to your own laziness as opposed to a leader or an organization's negligence. This cost of holiness means serving God to serve God, not to be served back with a compliment or platform or prestige as God's choicest fruit grows in the shade. Everybody. The cost of holiness means we quickly say to God, send me, I'll go, before the Lord has specified the what and the where and the how long. 
This cost of holiness means we repent of the sins we know while asking God to search our hearts for the evil that we do not know is there. This cost of holiness means obeying God when we want to and especially obeying God when we do not want to. This means to be holy, we cannot call a wrong thing right. It also means we cannot call the right thing wrong. Holiness is a witness to God's character, but demonstration of godliness without declaring God's decrees will be interpreted through the lens of anyone's worldview, losing its truth. We cannot just be God's holy witnesses. We must be God's witnesses through evangelism. But it's at this point that we come face to face with a cultural narrative of our time. It goes something like this. To present truth you have... To someone who does not have is to function like you are superior and they are inferior as if you are better than them because you know something they do not. Therefore, evangelism is wrong because it's pretentious, thinking you are better than someone else. Now, this narrative forgets that evangelism means good news. Good news of what? John 1 says in the beginning was the word. The Latin says in the beginning was the sermo, where we get our word for sermon. Ian McPherson says you can interpret John 1 this way. In the beginning was the sermon, and the sermon was with God, and the sermon was God. Meaning the message of the Bible, and therefore the good news of evangelism, is not morality nor philosophy, but the person of Jesus from which every good thing comes. Now, if we still believe to evangelize such good news is pretentious, we need to revisit two realities of pretension in the first place. Number one. To present the truth, that it's pretentious to present the truth you have to someone who does not have, is by that same intellectual thinking, pretentious. When someone says there is no absolute truth, they are making an absolute statement. When someone says you cannot tell a person what is right and what is wrong, they are telling a person what is right and what is wrong. And an argument that defeats itself is no longer a valid argument. Therefore, it's not pretentious to present what you believe. Do you understand? Reality of pretension number two. It is pretentious to not share good news if the good can be shared, but you refuse to share it. It would be like saying this. Oh, man, that's too bad that you cannot afford to eat this month. Not me, though. I just want a free supply of Chick-fil-A for an entire year. 52 meals, all for free. I'm blessed. I won it by being the first in line for the grand opening of a store. That's right. I was one of those dudes that camped in the line. You couldn't camp out because you don't own a tent? That's too bad. I've got seven tents, one for every day of the week. <laughs> I know you think I could have loaned you one, but they're special edition tents with the faces of the Ninja Turtles on them. Four turtles and three copies of Master Splinter. They're collector items. I trust you understand why I can't share these extras. But hopefully someone will give you some food. You just need to trust God. WWJD, bro. <laughs> now that... It's a tremendously ridiculous example, but I am trying to illuminate the ridiculous narrative of real pretension. It is pretentious to say, so often without words, my life is better than yours. This is why I will not help your life. This is not sparing change to the homeless because we have to buy our fourth $7 latte for the day. This is neglecting to meet with someone because their low social status won't increase your desired social status. Furthermore, this is Christians only sharing the name of God to others who believe in that name. This is Christians talking to God about people while never talking to people about God. This is Christians operating like vaccinated saved insiders who cannot be around poisonous unsaved outsiders. 
All the while, someone without the Jesus they need is doomed because these Christians do not share the Jesus they have. It is pretentious to not share good news if the good can be shared, but you refuse to share it. Now, if we are now beginning to see the realities over the false narratives when it comes to evangelism, perhaps a vision from General William Booth that he had a long time ago can help us see this truth without blemish. Allow me to articulate a very abridged version of his visionary illustration. He says, on one of my recent journeys as I gazed from the couch window, I was led into a train of thought concerning the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in most open and shameless rebellion against God with a, a thought with no thought for their eternal welfare. While my mind was thus engaged, I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I saw myriads of poor human beings drowning and floating, shouting and shrieking. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean, a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this rock was a very large platform. Onto this platform, I saw with a delight number I saw with delight a number of the struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of this angry ocean. And on looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, working by ladders, ropes, boats, and any means necessary to deliver the drowning out of the sea. Some actually jumped into the water, regardless of all consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And as I looked on, I saw the occupants of that platform quite a mix of company. They occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments, but only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of this sea. This puzzled me. All of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, but nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten about it. Most of them had no agonizing care about the perishing ones who were dying right before their eyes. Many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, roommates, classmates, and friends. But the thing to me, that seemed to be the most amazing was those on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice, and they felt they ought to obey it. At least they said they did. Those who confessed to love him much, who worshipped him, or who professed to do so, were so taken up with their trades and professions, their books and educations, their money-saving and pleasures, their families and relationships, their religions and arguments about religion, and their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. If they heard it, they did not heed it. They didn't care. And so the multitude went on right before them, drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed even more strange. Some of these people whom this wonderful building had, wonderful being had called and said, some of these people whom this wonderful being had called to come and help him save those in danger, spent their energy calling to this wonderful being so he would spend his energy helping them in their safety. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning truth of some letters he had written them. Some wanted him to come and make them feel incredibly secure on the rock so they could be absolutely sure they would never slip off and fall again to the ocean. So these people cried out to this wonderful being, come help us. All the while, he was down among the drowning creatures in the angry deep, his arms around them trying to drag them out. And looking up longingly, but all in vain to those already on the rock, crying to them with his voice all hoarse from calling, Come, 
to me. Come and help me. Do you now see what is really pretentious when it comes to sharing good news? Pride is not in the sharing of good news, but in the withholding of it. Evangelism is not about being pretentious, but a lack of evangelism is. This would mean then that it's not pretentious, but honoring and noble and worthy to share good news that saves people from their bad news when you have the power to share it. This is Harriet Tubman sharing a secret road to help slaves become free because we all hate slavery. This is Mr. Schindler telling Jews he has a way to keep them safe from a holocaust because we all hate death. This is a doctor letting the world know he has discovered a cure for cancer because we all love life. Furthermore, this is Christians sharing the good news. Jesus came to end slavery to sin. He did not come to die to get us out of hell but to get hell out of us this is christians sharing the good news jesus came to save us from death he did not come to make bad men good but to make dead men live this is christians sharing the good news that knowing jesus is eternal life not a philosophy to be mastered not a practice to be perfected but the person of god to be known what good news jesus who knew no sin became sin so we can become the righteousness of god he ended our slavery by dying our death so we could have his life we have to be God's witnesses. Then and only then in humility and brokenness with no other motive but the glory of the living God can we become God's witnesses through evangelism. We must be holy. We must come with words. But in a skeptical world more inclined to disregard than believe, we also have to come as God's witnesses with power. Allow me to introduce our final point. When we read beyond Acts 1.8, we readily and continually see the apostles were God's witnesses through power. They operated with supernatural ability in a natural world. In Acts 2, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit of God and speak in other kinds of tongues. Something happens throughout the rest of the book. Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people repent. In Acts 3, a man lame from birth begins to walk at the command of these apostles. In Acts 4, there is supernatural giving, giving as everyone offers to any who has need. In Acts 8, Philip is transported from one site to another for the sake of ministry. In Acts 9, the greatest threat against the church becomes radically converted to God and transforms into the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Beyond this supernatural conversion, we read about healings, Dead being raised to life, angels breaking apostles out of prison, handkerchiefs of apostles healing the sick, diseases leaving the sick, uh, demons fleeing from the possessed, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, words of prophecy. Acts is only some accounts of supernatural power accompanied with people getting right with God. Now this begs the question that really troubles me. If we are not seeing supernatural power today, does that mean supernatural power no longer exists? The logic to this question is the rational is believing a well-known country does not exist because you've never stepped foot there. There have been numerous accounts of supernatural power accompanied with people getting right with God. Witnessing for God and power still happens all around the world. If this is real, but if, if this is real, but our Kyalvas and campuses are not experiencing witnessing for God and power, we have to ask why. Now, I think there are two different stories concerning the same person that can answer our question. Allow me to tell you two brief instances about the life of our national Kyle director, Scott Martin. On a mission trip overseas, Scott found himself on a train with various people while traveling with some missionaries. 
While on this train, one of the civilian passengers fell to the ground lifeless. I'm not sure if it was a seizure. I'm not sure if they choked. Medical attendants ran a lifeless body, but they were unable to revive it. Our national director, watching all of this, was overcome with grief from a life cut too short and overcome with faith, believing his God can make a difference. So he went over to the lifeless body, laid his hands on the body, prayed for the body, and after a few minutes of intercession, the lifeless body gasped for air, Breath had returned to the lungs. A personality gone had come back. A man, once dead, was alive again. As you can imagine, the thoughts the spectators had of God before that moment, not convinced of God's power, skeptical in God's goodness, uncertain of God's presence, disbelieving there is a God at all. These thoughts were transformed after experiencing supernatural power. Now, sometime after praying on a train for a dead body to return to life, and seeing the answer within minutes, Scott found himself in one of the least desirable places in all the earth, the United States Post Office. <laughs> While waiting in line to be served, another body falls to the ground lifeless. I don't know why this happens to follow this man, but that's what's happening. <laughs> I am not sure if it was a seizure. I'm not sure if they choked. No medical attendants were immediately around to attempt revival. Our national director, watching all of this, was overcome once again with a grief over a life cut too short and overcome with faith, believing his God can make a difference. So he went over to the lifeless body, lays his hands on the body, and prays for the body. After a few minutes of intercession, the, one, the man once dead is still dead. So Scott prays again, and nothing happens. A few minutes become many minutes as Scott prays again and nothing happens, hopes again nothing happens, believes again and nothing happens. As he continues to pray out loud to Jesus in the post office, surrounded by strangers, much like he did in the train surrounded by strangers, there was no evidence of his prayer being heard, although people heard his prayer. And he continued to intercede. The sounds of sirens become louder and louder as he still prays. Medics bust through the door and rush to the body. He still prays. They attempt all the standard protocol to revive the body. He still prays. They regrettably announce a time of death. He still prays. They put a blanket over the body, wheel it out of the ambulance and drive away. There is no more reason to pray. When I heard this story, I asked Scott what many of us are contemplating. What exactly is the difference between prayers being answered in the train and prayers going unanswered in the post office? What is the difference between a miracle performed and a miracle missed? His response, that's not the point. He said, do you want to know the secret to seeing the supernatural power of God? Those who operate in the power of God are the ones who are willing to look like a fool for Jesus. This is why we do not see many witnesses for God operating in supernatural power today. The hesitancy of Christians to be used by God has nothing to do with disbelief in the Bible and everything to do with the disdain to look like fools. We would take more chances for God, but we are more concerned with how we look than how he looks. All the while, the psalmist tells us the requisite to be God's witnesses in power. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Whom will stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity. In other words, we will experience more and do more for God when we think of ourselves less and Jesus more. 
Why has the return and reign of King Jesus been delayed over 2,000 years and counting? It's not because God is not where he is supposed to be. But we are not where we are supposed to be. We must be God's witnesses in holiness. We must be God's witnesses in evangelism. We must be God's witnesses in power. And we must be God's witnesses to our campuses, to our cities, and to the ends of the earth. I would like to close with the finishing line of William Booth's Who Cares illustration as I invite Colin back onto this stage. He says, My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? All who are not on the rock are in the sea. With the light that has now broken in upon your mind and the call that is now sounding in your ears and the beckoning hands that are now before your eyes, you have no alternative. To go down among the perishing crowds is your duty. Your happiness from now on will consist in sharing their misery, your ease in sharing their pain, your crown in helping them bear their cross, and your heaven in going into the very jaws of hell to rescue them. Now, what will you do? Tonight we are going to have an altar call. Uh, for those who might be unfamiliar with an altar call, we want to have an opportunity to respond to God in whatever He's asking you to do. The reason we call it an altar is because that's just one of the unique things about the Bible. All these sheep, these goats that were offered as sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, and then Jesus turns it around in the New Testament and says, you are a living sacrifice. Meaning, you have the option to get on the cross you also have the option to take yourself off the cross. This is the nobility of a living sacrifice that can choose to say, yes, King Jesus, or to somehow say, no, King Jesus, which goes against everything that our theology would say. That's an altar call. So here's what we're going to do. All open us up in prayer. Colin will play. God is calling some of you to short-term missions tonight, undeniably so. God is calling some of you to long-term missions tonight, undeniably so. God is calling some of you, all of you, to give more than you want to give to this mission's offering, to give what you cannot afford, to, to give what you're going to miss, right? God is calling some of you to be Christian tonight. To lay aside your dreams, to lay aside your visions, to lay aside your selfishness, to lay aside your pleasures and realize that this King, Jesus, is worthy because he stepped down from heaven. He went into the dark, deepest, angry ocean to pull people out, to save them because he loves them. He who knew no sin became sin so we can become the righteousness of God. This is the message of the gospel. But what will you do? I know there are people afraid of evangelism in this room tonight. I know the idea of missions is uncomfortable. A vacation overseas sounds wonderful, but missions overseas, I'm not sure about that. I need to pray about that. Let's be honest. We don't pray about the vacations that we go on, but we have to pray about the mission trips that we go on. This is ridiculous. You don't need to pray to do something that the Bible has already asked you to do. What we do need to do is become incredibly courageous to do what we know we need to do when we don't want to do it. Right? 
And this is the good news, bad news aspect of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus says so many good things, but he also says so many bad things. I love how God tells me he loves me. I hate how he tells me to love my enemies. Can I be honest? I love how Jesus says that he picked up a cross and died for me. I am disturbed that he says, if I want to follow him, I must pick up my cross, die to self, and follow him. How about that? The God who did it first asks us to do it now. This is the altar call tonight. Will you wrestle with Jesus? Will you say, yes, King Jesus? Will you have the audacity to say, what would you have me do, King Jesus? As I open us up in prayer, I want you to think about Elijah, excuse me, Isaiah the prophet. He had a revelation of the holiness of God. After seeing the holiness of God, he repents, saying, Woe is me, an unclean man with unclean lips. I live among an unclean people. And then he hears God, the Holy Trinity, wrestling with, them, with himself, saying, Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? To the ends of the earth, to missions. And Isaiah, without knowing a vocation, without knowing a location, without knowing a time frame, says, Send me, I will go. That's godly. A lot of us are hesitant because we don't, we're, we're waiting for a where, we're waiting for a how long, we're waiting for a who with, we're waiting for a what. See Jesus tonight and say, send me, I'll go. And then let God give you the assignment after you volunteer. Let's pray. These altars are open. Jesus, we love you, God. Lord Jesus. We need to get right with you, Lord Jesus. We cannot call the wrong things right anymore. We can also not call the right things wrong anymore. Lord God, may we be holy by having your otherness. May we evangelize by sharing your good news. And Lord Jesus, may we operate with the power of God. May Texas Tech Chi Alpha be a Chi Alpha that has your prophecy and your wisdom and your knowledge and your healing and your deliverance. Lord Jesus, may this Chi Alpha be a place where dead men become alive, where bad men become holy, holy, holy like you, King Jesus. May you change people tonight, God. May you give us the courage to lay down all of our dreams and all of our visions onto this unique altar as a living sacrifice to say, Oh God, send me, I'll go. What would you have us do, King Jesus? May the words, no King Jesus, never be a part of our vocabulary, oh God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to die so that we can live. Help us, O oh God, to go so that the good news of the gospel can reach the ends of the earth and then the end can come. We are tired of death. We're tired of sorrow. We're tired of pain. We're tired of racial tension. We're tired of all of it, King Jesus. It doesn't make sense. We don't need a better government. We don't need better policies. We need the theocracy of Jesus to reign. And you have connected the theocracy of Jesus with your Christians going to the ends of the earth. So help us, oh God, to go so that you can come back. Help us to be honest with you tonight. In Jesus' name, these altars are open. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Texas Tech Chi Alpha. For more information, you can visit our website at ttuxa.org.